Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. My name is Dan Hughes. With me today is Chris Wallace. Uh, one of the topics that we discussed at, at, with pretty good interval here at Von Nelson is the debate between active and passive. And it's most certainly been a, a discussion that's been uh, in the forefront of most folks in, in the recent years, and particularly as we've seen a, a massive flood of, uh, of flow toward the more passive space. With Chris today, we want to talk about a few of the larger highlights that are taking place uh, as they unfold in the world today. Um, first one was being is, is the recent news from the Fed around contracting the balance sheet. Um, we're in a world today where the aggregate balance sheet of the six largest central banks is uh, represents roughly about 40% of their GDP. Um, and really what we found is, is excess liquidity has, has been the fundamental, uh, one of the largest drivers of, of the market as opposed to fundamentals. Uh, now, Chris, as the Fed's forecasted beginning to shrink their balance sheet and contract it, um, what are your thoughts on where that's going to leave passive investment versus, uh, versus active in, in the future? Yeah, I, you know, I, there's been uh, several tailwinds for passive investing, and certainly one of the largest ones has been the expansion of the various central banks' balance sheets. And when you do look at the four largest central banks and the rate of quantitative easing that's occurred, although the Fed has stopped, uh, we were continuing uh, to produce about $300 billion worth of additional liquidity each month out of thin air. And in the and that was through 2017. But in the aggregate, there's been $20 trillion produced, which is effectively the equivalent of the U.S. GDP. And that liquidity that was created out of thin air as it was pushed into the world, entered the world, not through economic activity in the form of loans to commercial industries, to construction activity, uh, it showed up uh, directly into the securities industry through the fixed income market. And so you can imagine what distortive impact that has had on price discovery, as well as credit availability, as well as volatility suppression. Um, and those three things uh, together, I think, have created a fairly distorted world as it relates to security performance. And with that, it's made every security uh, behave a little bit better than it should have. And it has allowed participation of the passive funds at uh, very attractive rates. And that's presented a lot of uh, competitive dynamics for the typical active manager, for sure. So you're, as, we, as we start to begin walking through this liquidity tightening, how does that unwind the indices, or, or what is the, the headwinds that begin to face the indices? Yeah, you know, when you look at price movements, especially for asset classes, they really are driven by liquidity. Um, and it's the expansion of liquidity that moves price. And what we're going to start to see is the contraction of liquidity. And it's important to realize it's not just... Uh, that liquidity needs to decline, it needs to go negative. It's just lack of incremental increases in liquidity or a reduction in the amount of liquidity going into the market can also have an impact. So as we know, the Fed stopped uh, its quantitative e easing program uh, several quarters ago. It's now going to go into a very modest contraction of its balance sheet. I think more importantly will be when the ECB begins to contract their balance sheet uh, because I really think it is the ultra-low rates within the European Union that is helping keep it floor on U.S. interest rates. And to just give you an idea of the level of distortions now, European high-yield credit actually yields less than U.S. Treasuries. 
Uh, some of that may be able to be explained by expected moves in the currency because clearly the U.S. is experiencing some downward pressure in the dollar. But by and large, from a risk standpoint, there, there's just no question that there's some severe distortions um, in the credit markets. And when you see those start to normalize, you'll start to see more dispersion, more volatility. And I think it's important for people to realize that when you buy an index, that purchase is time-dependent and not price-dependent, meaning those dollars are going to go into every security regardless of that security's price and fundamental, and they're going to go in over a very specific window of time. And when it's people buying those securities, it feels great. It's when people begin to sell those securities that you have a, a significant shift in behavior, and you'll start to see real separation uh, between actively managed funds and passively managed funds. Right. So you're, you're describing a scenario where you, there's indiscriminate buying, which is driving it up, and indiscriminate buying and on, on selling it down. That's correct. On to the next topic then, um, tax reform. And this is a big one in the news these days. Uh, and I believe there's, you know, there's, a, there's really a lot of misconceptions uh, more than anything else regarding tax reform uh, on the corporate level, uh, particularly as folks look at small and mid-cap stocks. Uh, I think the belief out there is uh, all participate equally as well. Um, most are uh, full taxpayers or close to full taxpayers, given that their, uh, their product base and, and consumer base is more domestically located. Uh, would you like to um, discuss some of those kind of myths that we, we yeah. are experiencing on the, in the marketplace? Absolutely. You know, in a Markets love narratives because narratives make for simple investment thesis and you can get a lot of people on board and build some momentum. So there's clearly a narrative out there. And we saw this immediately after the election. We saw it with the rally in the third quarter that began on, I believe, September 8th when there was more confirmation out of uh, select congressmen and the Treasury Secretary that we would move forward with uh, tax reform, where the automatic bid is by U.S. small cap indices, be it the Russell 2000 value core growth, um, and that blind purchase being, as you described it, all companies would benefit from tax reform, and nothing could be further from the truth. When you look at the Russell 2000, it's about 30% of its constituents don't make any money, and there will be zero benefit from tax reform. Um, there's also close to, you know, easily 15 to 20% that are either non-taxable entities or pass-through entities. Um, and depending on the nature of the way tax reform is adopted, uh, you could see where if corporations are denied the ability to deduct interest, that their cost of capital could actually rise. And what you'll find then would be a little bit of compression on multiples. It may challenge certain business strategies that rely on cheap funding and acquisitions or an M&A strategy to roll up their industry. It also may challenge, quite frankly, prices paid in the past for prior acquisitions uh, to the extent those discount rates begin to rise. So you know, betting on U.S. small caps solely because of tax reform, uh, I think, is very misguided. Uh, more importantly, um, I think it's well discounted into the marketplace. I know the narrative out there is that tax reform isn't discounted, and there's no question it's not fully discounted. Uh, but I simply look at it and say, if we have any hope of hitting next year's earnings estimates, uh, then clearly we're going to need some form of tax relief and ongoing economic growth. Um, you know, just to, it, it, for people to understand real, really where we started from at the beginning of this year and, and where we are now, you know, we've seen in the small cap universe uh, 
earnings estimates for 2017 actually fall uh, at a mid-teens rate since October of 2016, while the P.E. ratio for 2017 earnings have expanded from 16 and change to 23 and change. Um, So clearly they're discounting a lot more economic growth or a lot higher level of profitability. Whether or not you pin that on tax reform, I think is quite frankly irrelevant. So I think this will be a buy the rumor, sell the news event. Um, I think people have been bidding into U.S. small caps leading into any potential tax reform. Post-tax reform, we may get a a little flurry of a rally after that, in which case everybody will then begin selling to the extent that was their purpose for buying. Right. And and just to reiterate one of the points you made, you know, as it it relates to the index composition, uh, we're between those companies that are – our negative earners uh, and those companies that are, are passed through entities or have specialized uh, taxation around them already to begin with, we're talking somewhere between you know 40 to 50 percent of, of those small and mid cap indices that uh, actually will just simply will not participate at all uh, in any da- in any tax reform benefits at all. Correct. Right. Uh, and then to the last topic for today, uh, discussing the demographic shift that we're undergoing here that is unfolding here within the U.S. and uh, you know this began uh, back in, in the beginning part of the first second quarter of this year when we saw uh, the largest cohort of baby boomers beginning to slide through and uh, receiving their minimum required minimum distributions. Um, Chris, can you walk us through what's what's happening today uh, with respect to an aging population in the U.S., um, how that is affecting uh, liquidity um, going in and out of U.S. equity markets, and, and namely what the result will be for the uh, indices? Absolutely. You know, there's two parts to get prices to move. One, you have to have Uh, liquidity available. And certainly what we've seen up until this point has been uh, that was generated through ultra low interest rates, expansion of credit and expansion of Federal Reserve balance sheets. Uh, In addition to that, you have to have willing buyers of securities. And in that case, uh, up until this point, really since the early 80s, it's been the baby boomers as they built up their savings over time. Uh, We're transitioning from boomers investing into the marketplace to where boomers will become uh, ultimately net sellers of securities. And it's a real question mark as to whether the next generation will have sufficient disposable income and savings to offset those pressures. More importantly, the setup is not nearly as attractive as what it was when the boomers were accumulating their own savings and retirement accounts. Keep in mind that one of the smallest generations we've had in almost a century was the generation ahead of the boomers. And they were net sellers in the face of a very large demographic being the boomers themselves who were building up their savings, building up their retirements to the tune of almost $3 of individual investment and savings by the boomers into markets compared to about a dollar from the prior generation that was selling. So very positive dynamics for price. Uh, If you just assume that subsequent generations are able to accumulate a savings rate at roughly the same amount and get to the same level that the boomers have been able to achieve, Uh, you're still going to flip those economics on their head should start uh, early next decade, late this decade, where you start to see incrementally more selling pressure rather than buying uh, momentum as it relates to price movements on a go-forward basis. And easily by the back half of the decade, you end up with more net selling than buying. And again, you know, similar to any liquidity move, it doesn't need to go negative to have a price impact. It just needs to be less positive. Uh, and it's not as if we're starting from, you know, attractive levels from a valuation standpoint. Valuations are quite stretched. And so, you know, people 
will be looking for reasons to book profits. Uh, they will be looking for reasons to pull back and declining liquidity and incrementally more sellers rather than buyers should give them plenty of opportunity or reasons to um, be a little more cautious and a little more particular about what it is they want to invest in. Yeah, and this and this just sounds a lot to me like the old saying that you know fundamentals drive valuations, but liquidity drives the price. And you know we're seeing this in in a couple of different effects, right? It's it's the shift in demographics, it's this tightening liquidity that we're going through, and and really the net results in either one of these cases is going to be the opposite of what we've recently experienced in the last nearly decade here, where the indiscriminate bid, the excess liquidity that that drive to you know the, the drive to the marketplace um, that has lifted and in, in, in driven asset prices uh, almost blindly here, um, as that begins to unwind, you see a real separation of those who are uh, are, are trading at a level what, which are warranted um, as a result of of their fundamentals and their management team and their skill and their product base, um, and those that have been trading upwards purely based on where we've seen in regards of flow. So um, you know, the last question that I would, I would have for you here is, you know, in a world like this, right, you know, we're, we're, we can envision it. We, there's, there's a lot of good visibility around it. Uh, that liquidity tightening that is happening in the U.S. Um, is still, you know, relatively small compared to what the continued expansion. Um, if the ECB comes through and, and adds to that, uh, it will still be at a, a relatively slow rate. Um, coupled with, you know, we have a multiple-year horizon with the demographic moves that is, that is taking place. So, you know, it, really, if, if you're going to see a correction in, in the market, but I want to talk about, you know, specifically uh, for those who are invested in passive investing, you know, these can come from the result of either a, a decline in price, right, or a trading sideways over time. What is the more likely scenario for somebody who would be in a passive investment? And then where do you see a true high active share active investment competing against that? Yeah. Now, I, you know, I think there's a couple of challenges for passive at this point. You know, we talked a lot about central bank liquidity being a tailwind. We haven't talked about the DOL rule and the incremental kind of one-time reallocation uh, into passive strategies related purely because of, of regulatory provisions. And so incrementally going forward, while there may be more passive flows than in the past, uh, there won't be as much as what we've witnessed in the last couple of years. Um, and so with that, you've kind of get kind of normal liquidity and normal competition between active and passive. And then passive is going to face kind of three challenges. And it's kind of the three D's. It's the debt, the demographics and the disruption. And all three of those are negative factors for broad investment universe. And it's going to take navigating those three factors in order to generate uh, attractive returns. Uh, you know, it's Unfortunately, investors always uh, invest based on the rearview mirror, and so it's easy to look back for the last three to five years, look at an indice that's been going up at a mid-teens rate, and just extrapolate that you know that that's fine and that will continue. And the reality is, the math just doesn't add up. So you know, I think we're going to continue to see challenges. I think they'll start to develop as we move through 2018 because liquidity will decline. Uh, I think also. We're, what we're already starting to see with the recovering the cyclicals and the industrials is the top line has been very attractive. We've seen great revenue growth in the most recent quarter, but what we haven't seen follow through are the incremental margins. And I think that's really what people fail to realize is that we're at peak valuation levels on peak margins 
Um, and it truly has to be different this time in order to sustain the types of returns that investors have become used to in passive investing. And, you know, there's no more dangerous phrase than it's different this time in investing. It, it quite frankly, just isn't. Uh, and ultimately, that will be borne out. And my guess is we start to see that in the back half of 18 as liquidity really begins to contract. Great. Well, well, thank you very much for joining us today, Chris. And if any of our listeners have questions you'd like to relay to the portfolio management team, uh, please reach out to me at dhughes at vonnelson.com. Thank you. Important information. The analysis and opinions referenced herein represent the subjective views of Daniel Hughes and Chris Wallace on November 7, 2017. They are subject to change at any time based on market and other conditions. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Any reference to specific securities, sectors, or markets within this material does not constitute investment advice or a recommendation or an offer to buy or to sell any security or an offer of services. This communication is for information only and is intended for investment professional use only. This material may not be redistributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Although Natixis Investment Managers believes the information provided in this material to be reliable, it does not guarantee the accuracy, adequacy, or completeness of such information. Provided by Natixis Distribution, LP, 888 Boylston Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02199. Compliance Code 19528011, Job Pod 115-1117, Expire 7-31-2018.